Welcome to the Exploring Unschooling podcast. I'm Pam Larickia, longtime unschooling mom and author. Join me and my wonderful guests for interviews, information, and inspiration about unschooling and living joyfully with your family. You can find the episode show notes, your free introductory ebook, What is Unschooling?, and lots more information at livingjoyfully.ca. And here's the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Pam Larickia, and this is episode number 79 of the podcast. It's the 5th of July, 2017, as I record this intro. And this week, I'm speaking with Dan Cadzo. Dan's an archaeologist who chose to leave his PhD program and become a stay-at-home unschooling dad of four kids. We talk about his path to unschooling, including how he's developed trust in the process, uh, what the most challenging aspect has been so far for him, and his advice for dads who are just starting out on this journey. I really enjoyed the archaeological perspective that Dan brought to our conversation. It's really interesting stuff, and I hope you enjoy it as well. I mentioned last week that Lissy and her boyfriend Jacob were visiting, and we had such a fun time. They had lots of time to just hang out and be walking in the forest, climbing trees, playing on the trampoline, soaking in the hot tub, making s'mores around the fire pit, and just sitting on the patio reading and chatting. Oh, and the impromptu photo shoots, like the 45 minutes they spent on the roof as the sun set on their last night here. They're both photographers. Joseph and Michael were around for a good chunk of the week as well, so there was lots of fun and chatter. Uh, we also visited the Science Center and had a swim and barbecue at my mom's. Uh, one night, we had a big birthday dinner for Michael, who turned 20 last week, and he took the next day off so that he, Lissy, and Jacob, who are all roller coaster aficionados, could spend the day at Canada's Wonderland. Uh, another night, we went to see Michael in the show at Medieval Times, and that's always super fun. Uh, Lissy hadn't seen him as a knight, and Jacob had never been to Medieval Times, so that was great. And we went into town to see the local fireworks show for Canada Day. So it was a great week. We all had a lovely time enjoying the things that we love to do, both out and about and hanging out at home. So it was kind of the perfect mix for us. And we're all excited to get back to our work too, which I think is great. Uh, speaking of, I want to say thank you to everyone who has chosen to support the show on Patreon. And a big extra welcome to new patron Anita Wright. With Anita's pledge, we hit our next goal. Yay! <laughs> Moving forward, I won't be needing to pay out of pocket for the data hosting and transcription costs for producing the podcast. Thank you so, so much. And to celebrate, I'll be creating a private community for patrons where we can connect and chat. And if you're a patron, keep an eye out for that. I'll be in touch soon. And if you'd like to join us, you can support the show even for as little as a dollar a month at the Exploring Unschooling page at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash exploring unschooling. And this week's quote is from our guest, Dan Cadzo. Our schooling system's only about 150 years old. There are examples of schools and workshops and apprenticeships back into antiquity, but for the most part, kids learned organically just by being in society. I think of it in terms of the transmission of culture. 
And 150 years ago, somebody decided, this is really important. We need to control it. And you can hypothesize over their motivations, whether they were good or bad, but I think that it's really hurting us as a, as a society that we are trying to control it and limiting people's experiences so much. But it seems like every generation seems to get a little worse and a little worse, and now you drive around the country and those iconic farmhouses are crumbling in ruins and there's trailers next to them and six kids lined up getting into the school bus, and it just kind of breaks my heart to see what we're losing with this overreaching attempt to control the transmission of culture. It's like the kids are separated from the world and taught about it through abstractions. No, I love that point. Well, and first, isn't it amazing to remember that the school system as we know it, which feels so deeply woven into the fabric of our lives, is only 150 years old? It is a cultural experiment, not a definitive answer. And the second thing that jumped out at me is how when this idea comes up in conversation, instead of considering it as information about how human beings innately learn, so often the accusations fly about us wanting to take everybody back to the world as it was before the school system came along, that we're pining for the good old days. And that entirely misses the point. It's about how children, how human beings learn in any time period by being immersed in their society, in their culture, not by being separated from it. It's about helping children learn the way they are wired to do it best. And that's what unschooling is all about, living and learning in today's world. It just makes so much sense, doesn't it? And now on to the interview with Dan. Hi everyone, I'm Pam Larickia from livingjoyfully.ca and today I'm here with Dan Cadzo. Hi Dan. Hello. Hello, hello. Dan is a stay-at-home unschooling dad of four and it's been a really interesting journey for him and I am looking forward to hearing a lot more about it. So to get us started, Dan, can you share with us a bit about you and your family and how you came to unschooling? Sure. Um my wife and I are anthropologists. I'm an archaeologist by training. And uh, we were in graduates. Well, I was working as a, a field archaeologist, and my wife went to graduate school, and we had our first kid. And uh, then uh, she graduated, and I went into graduate school. I, I got a Eigert fellowship. So it was like four years of a free ride. And, um, and uh, then we had three more kids, you know, in the ensuing time. And, um, during like the class intensive phase, the oldest was getting school ready. And, uh, you know, and we were using daycare a lot too while I was in school and she was working and, uh, you know, and it just was so hard. It was so stressful leaving the crying kids in the care of the daycare workers and, uh, later teachers. And we didn't, you know, we didn't feel good about that at all. It just seemed like it wasn't healthy and you know like the society prepares you for that they tell you oh they're gonna cry and and the daycare workers would use euphemisms like oh he was a little sad but he cheered up and um you know i mm -hmm. i saw that it wasn't just sadness you know it was holy terror who are you leaving me with you know and and um you know but you have these strong pressures from society it's like everybody does this do this too and um you know we, we did and and over time, you know, there were just more and more of those things that, you know, we found that everybody does 
that we didn't want to do. You know, like there was no need to have our kids sleep in a quiet, dark room away from us um, at an early age. You know, like that's just not how, you know, as an archaeologist, how society has worked for the last hundred or so thousand years you know most of the time extended families are living in you know one room buildings or caves or huts or lean-tos or out in the open but all together so um you know we began to question that sort of thing more and more and as my class intensive part of graduate school is sort of easing up um you know we we had asa the oldest in school and, uh, you know, we were noticing it was taking a toll on him. He was, his grammar was getting worse. There were incidents of violence and, uh, you know, reported by his teachers. And, and um, you know, he picked up some sort of like sexist and racist dialogue, which I was friends with his teachers. I know it, was, it wasn't coming from them. It was coming from the other students, you know. And, and with a classroom of like one teacher and 20 30 students you know that the kids are learning more from each other so when it came time to put the second kid in you know we decided instead to pull the first kid out and then take the others out of daycare and you know i was just gonna do it at home and uh we didn't really know much about homeschooling and hadn't even heard of on schooling back then but it became you know instantly apparent that the whole school model just doesn't work you know there's no way to get kids to sit down and do worksheets and and study discrete topics at discrete times just because you tell them to it's like you uh, you would have to be very authoritarian and coercive to even try to pull that off you know so we started slipping into the unschooling unwittingly slipping into the unschooling <laughs> paradigm you know right away and, uh, you know, over time, you know, it, it, for me, it started out a lot just um, reading like science magazine, science news and seeing all these studies about kids and cognitive development and what works and what helps with learning and what doesn't. And um, it just it, it became increasingly apparent, apparent that what goes on in schools is really, if anything, harmful to kids and, and not helpful, um, like the lack of play the lack of recess the lack of uh you know creative free time where kids can learn how to collaborate and compromise in small groups you know that's like that's all missing except for those you know diminishing periods of recess that are still there and uh so we start thinking about what we really wanted to do you know with our kids what we what what our hopes were you know and and what you know, exploring what the kids wanted, like what, what they naturally had, you know, predilections for. And a lot of it was just that unstructured free time exploring. Um, I'd say exploring is probably the, the biggest part. Um, just wandering around, looking under rocks, behind trees, climbing things, and doing that in novel environments. And, uh, and that sort of became our mantra. So, like on our school paperwork, you know, we, we kind of, we write it as, um, you know, the, the world is our classroom and our textbooks, you know, and, and we, you know, take the kids and we keep them in this complex and interesting world and, and they ask questions and, and we answer them even if we have to do research to do so, um, which is often the case. And, and we answer them in ways that, uh, um, cover the topics listed in the uh, above stated state mandated curricula mm -hmm. and uh 
you know, and so far it's been working out great. We're really enjoying our kids and how they're turning out and how much they love each other and are comfortable around each other. Um, of course, they fight from time to time. Who doesn't? Uh, even mom and dad does. But uh, for the most part, they just get along famously, and and you know they're learning how to deal with conflicts, and and uh, and that's actually one of the the biggest perks I see, you know, in our family. And I, I don't spend a lot of time comparing our family to other families because that's just not healthy. But to society in large, I see like our kids don't have that ageism or competitiveness you know we we get a lot of that's not fair but um you know sometimes like things could be a little more fair you got to try to figure out ways to do that but uh you know like the the big kids and the little kids they uh, they play together you know it's not mm-hmm. just the older kids and the smaller kids pairing off sometimes the biggest and the littlest will pair off and the two middle kids will pair off or any other permutation or a lot of times they're just all together just this morning they were um um, up in, in Asa's bedroom and just hanging out, talking, you know, making up songs with silly words in them and uh, singing together. And I don't know. It's like a little piece of um, Little House on the Prairie or something like uh, <laughs> that you, you feel like you're creating. So Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. That was a huge piece um, that th- there wasn't that grade age separation you know what I mean they were all just we're all just people right and we're all just hanging out and doing things together and and who pairs up with who is just based on the interest and what somebody is interested in doing at that moment yeah I mean exactly yeah it's such a that's such a huge difference isn't it I loved your point about climbing trees because uh, my daughter Lissy's visiting, and just yesterday they yesterday um, they were climbing the trees here still, and but they're oh, it's Michael's birthday today, so they're he's twenty oh, and she's twenty three. <laughs> happy birthday, Michael! Wow. And they were out climbing trees still, you know, together. <laughs> That's great. And yeah, I always tell the kids, you know, if you if you don't give up on that, you'll never lose it. You know, you can keep it for the rest of your life. That's Leela. Barking at nothing, apparently. Sorry. <laughs> the other interesting point uh, that I really like, it is it is really interesting, isn't it, that so much of the research, um, you know, you were talking about reading, uh, you're reading in journals and what they're finding about, you know, learning and relationships and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, how it works best is is not the way the school system is set up, right? But still, exactly, the system yeah. is just so hard to change, even though all the research is pointing in in another direction. I think you know we're we're finding there are more and more alternative um, learning environments being set up now because you can't just kind mm-hmm. of change and tweak the system that we've got because it's just. Unmanageable. It would it's require so large. such a fundamental yeah. restructuring. That, yeah, that there's just too many people in a bureaucratic sense just advocating for their own positions. And yeah. Like their positions would go away or be completely remade, and they don't want to do that. And there's a lot of money wrapped up in it, too, you know, that exactly. compromises yeah. people's motivations. <laughs> if that's a nice way to put it. <laughs> um. <laughs> Question two, you mentioned uh, your kids and some of their interests. Um, I was wondering if you could share uh, what they're enjoying at the moment and how they're pursuing that. I'd love to hear what the kids are up to. 
Well, our biggest family project is we were um, we we fixed up an apartment above our garage and and run an Airbnb out of it, which is kind of neat because we get people from all over the world visiting and. Oh. Uh, and they're they're mostly really friendly and and interactive, but um, and every now and then they'll even have kids that we can play with. But uh, we're taking that money and in lieu of our savings for retirement, because uh, I, I already feel like I've retired. Um, mm-hmm. And we're buying a, a a very old farm in Livingston County, New York, and uh, so we're in the process of closing on that. But we have an occupancy agreement, so it's this great old farm with all kinds of uh, very old buildings and creeks and part of its forested, part of its brush, part of its agricultural. And, um, and we're going to try to like, we're sort of thinking of it as an unofficial like immersion learning center with a focus on, um, you know, like uh, immersion self-directed learning center with a Mm -hmm. focus on horticulture, subsistence and, um, you know, just nature ecology and, uh, so um, they love it when they can get out there and play in the creeks and climb trees and just run around. You know, we live in the geographic center of Buffalo, New York, and there's an expressway that was supposed to be removed um, when we bought our house. So, you know, our movement here in the are really restricted. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, out there, they can just explore and roam. It's like 40 acres of, of beauty. And so... They were really getting into that. They've uh, been starting all kinds of plants in little peat pots. And unfortunately, the closing has been delayed by two months because of uh, requirements for planning board meetings and then public hearings. So we have all these like, um, you know, kale and broccoli and, you know, cilantro (laughs) and parsley and stuff growing on a front porch. And and they're getting like dwarfed by their small containers. But um, (laughs) But they're they're very much excited about um, gardening and growing things and um, improving the soil. We're gonna like the kids are they love digging, so uh, they each have their own shovels and they want to dig a giant pit and just start collecting <laughs> all the firewood we can and have a big fire and then bury it so we can basically make you know biochar and then yeah. till that into the gardens along with some compost that we're already saving up and uh, you know so they're. That's sort of like the big thing that's that's kind of we're all focusing on and, uh, the, you know, acquiring the tools that you need for country living, like a trailer to get the mower down there and pick up lumber and stuff like that. But um, in terms of day-to-day stuff, the, the three oldest are all boys. The youngest is a girl, Iris, who's four now. Oh, no, five. Um, and uh, the boys are incredibly immersed in Minecraft. Um, I know that's like that comes up on every show, and <laughs> and I honestly don't know what is so educational about Minecraft, but I do know that it enthralls them. And uh, you know, when they get their turn or time on a screen, you know, that's what they love building and exploring and mining, and and so that that's sort of like I can't figure out what is so educational about it i've watched videos about why it's educational and it didn't really resonate with me but the fact that they love it you know i I assume they're getting something out of it the same was true um years ago like um they developed a an obsession the older two with dot to dots and Uh um 
I was constantly printing dot to dot worksheets out from the computer, and I and I was constantly fighting this urge to say, "Come on, you've you've played this out. You know, you you get it. There's no more. Come, let's can we move on? You know." But I I didn't. I fought that, and uh, in the end, we ended up buying these extreme dot to dot books that had like in thousands of dots and. Um, and, uh, you know, and every now and then I'd slip and I'd say, come on, you, you did that. Why don't you color it in and cut it out and we'll hang it up or something. And they're like, nope, I just want to connect the dots. And, mm-hmm. the, and and it's like, well, I don't know what you're getting out of it, but it's holding your interest. So you're getting something out of it. So we just supported it. And uh, and then, they you know, they move on to other things. But uh, they, they vary. Their interests change a lot. You know, one day they want to... Uh, make potions and then freeze them and then thaw them with a magnifying glass or start fires mm-hmm. with a magnifying glass. And the next day they want to do color and cut crafts, um, you know, play in the dirt, climb trees. It, it really varies quite a bit. And it's it's so hard to pin one specific interest on one specific kid. kid. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's so fun to watch where their mind goes, isn't it? Right. To see mm-hmm. just all the different things that they come up with every day when they wake up. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to, um, you know, mm-hmm. like seeing them apply like vernacular. Um, like when, when it comes to television, you know, we, we regulate it a little bit. Like um, our underlying thinking, I know it's not a pure on school thing, but our underlying thinking, you know, initially was screen time is really only as bad as the quality of what they're watching, you know, plus what it's displacing. So, you know, like if it's a a beautiful day and there's a park nearby, but they're just watching TV all day, that seems kind of bad. But if you're on a, you know, a long interstate highway trip, just staring at cornfields, it's like, I think a screen would be much more educational than that. But, uh, but, um, Oh, I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. Oh, yeah, just like they, they learn, you know, all kinds of like cultural stuff from the TV that would, they wouldn't learn in our house because, you know, we we are who we are. We have our sort of subset of American culture, but there's so much more out there that they learn from. And and just hearing the littlest, especially, you know, like probably, I, I can't come up with one right now, but apply these kind of like complicated colloquial terms to novel situations is always kind of fun yeah it they bring such an interesting and open perspective on things right so the it's always i've always been fascinated and love the connections that they make because they aren't the connections so often that i would make but they see these fresh and new Mm -hmm. ways of putting things together that's always really fascinating isn't it yeah, that's that's one of the problems with our educational system, uh, K through PhD, is that you know so much of it is structured by pleasing the teachers and the the people who set up the curriculum's expectations that you know you're never going to come up with novelty, you know, if if the first order of of uh, business is to make sure that you've regurgitated what they think is important. And I, I even think of like how medical doctors are trained with their residencies where they have to like work 20 hours straight, you know, and it's, it's like that in a, you know, in a military or a monastery setting, it'd be pretty clear that that's like brainwashing, you know, like driving the stuff into their heads. But um, we just sort of take it for granted, you know, and it's like, I don't, I don't want my kid to be the one who's, you know, being operated on by somebody who's been, you know, on their feet for 18 hours it's like uh, 
it just doesn't seem healthy. But it's also, you know, like going back to the novelty thing, you're you're just, you know, repeating what's expected of you and not allowed to think for yourself. And and even when you're, you know, like in academia, the the the, the rule is publish or perish. You know, you might get mm-hmm. into a small teaching college that has the emphasis on teaching, but. But when you're submitting articles to these journals, it's like, heaven forbid you come up with something new or novel. Um, that, you know, like the, the old guard that are editing the journals will just say, no, that's unorthodox. You know, like you should go publish in Mad Magazine or something. Mm-hmm. And and yeah. here in, in northeastern uh, United States, like the archaeology is still, you know, operating in a sort of 1960s paradigm but uh, in other parts of the world, they're uh, really looking at how Stone Age people were able to have huge ecological impacts, you know, and, and a lot of good. Um, a lot of it, you know, like, you know, sure, they were implicated in some, uh, you know, the Pleistocene mass extinctions, but uh, it wasn't like a simple overkill hypothesis. They were through a lot of like grassroots self-organizing activities, um, they were having like large impacts and a lot of them were very good. Uh, the guy, William Bailey did, uh, ecological, like, uh, plant inventories and places that were, uh, occupied by humans, even in the long past had a much greater degree of biodiversity than completely undisturbed, pristine wildernesses that, you know, would be dominated by, you know, for example, one species of tree that can reproduce in low light, but also dominate the canopy. So like mm-hmm. the, the very unproductive environments. And the neat thing about that, too, is, you know, going back to unschooling, like if you look at the ethnohistoric literature um, with, uh, say, the Iroquois, the kids were right in the mix with everything. You know, they were out there with their moms. They were maternalistic and matrilocal. So the, the the women were in charge, you know, of a lot of the clan leadership. And they were also like the when people married, the husband would move in with the wife's family. And uh, they were also uh, completely in charge of the horticulture, which was vast. And, you know, like they some of the early descriptions from like Champlain and Cartier, you'd have these villages that would have like 40 or 60 acres of, you know, food production going on around them. And um, and it was reportedly not a lot of hard work how they did it. And the kids were out there with them doing it, you know, uh, right there learning right with their parents, not separated, you know. Yeah. And uh, there's, there's um, throughout all of human history, I mean, our, our schooling system is only about 150 years old. And, and there are examples of schools and workshops and apprenticeships that go back into antiquity, but... For the most part, you know, kids learned organically just by being in society. And I, I think of it in terms of like the transmission of culture, which uh, culture for non-anthropologists can be thought of as everything that helps humans to adapt to the environment that isn't biological or genetic. You know, so like we wear clothes so we can live in the Arctic, but we're not physically adapted to that. And that's part of what our our culture allows some. Um, Mm-hmm. There's no no other example on, on the whole planet of any species uh, like and at our height in the food ladder or food web that has covered more of the earth than humans, and it's it's because of our culture. Like uh, a lot of times, there's these these sort of scientific just so stories about 
you know, starvation and going without. But, you know, when you think about our species originated in, you know, uh, West Eastern Africa or, or Western Africa or the Middle East about 150 to 200,000 years ago, you know, based on fossil evidence and has, has spread out over the entire planet. There's no, you know, even things that seem really uninhabitable, like we are inhabiting and thriving in, you know, like that all happened without any kind of formal control over the transmission of culture. And 150 years ago, we somebody decided, like, this is really important. We need to control it. And you can hypothesize about their motivations, whether they were good or bad, you know. But um, I think that it's really hurting us as a society that we are trying to control it and limiting people's experiences so much. Um, and, uh, like, I, I see it, you know, like, when you look at early uh, frontier and and post frontier architecture and landscapes, you know, you used to have these like, uh, you know, quote unquote gentlemen farmers reading Homer and the Iliad, you know, in their Italianate and Greek revival farmhouses, and you know, and they they knew the importance of an education and they bought into the system of schooling. But it's just like every generation it seems to get a little worse and a little worse. And now you drive around the country, and a lot of those, you know iconic farmhouses are crumbling in ruins and there's like trailers next to them and you know six kids lined up getting into the school bus and uh and it, and it just kind of breaks my heart to see what we're losing you know with this um mm-hmm. overreaching attempt to control the transmission of culture it's like the kids are separated from the world and then taught about it through abstractions yeah no, that's so fascinating. I find that really interesting to uh, hear you talk about. And I think that leads really nicely into the next question, because I, I think that's what you've been talking about, was uh, the key pieces uh, in your decision to leave your PhD program and stay home with your children instead. So was yeah, that they, was that those kinds of things the the things that were coming together for you and kind of informed your decision at that point? Yeah, all of those things tied together, and um, you know, and that and that was very much like the intellectual foundation. You know, it's for me, um, I can't just have an authoritative authoritative figure tell me like this is best. You know, I have to. Mm-hmm know the data behind it and the way the studies were conducted and and you know and admittedly a lot of it i can't make sense of um you know it's outside of my field or experience but um you know like a lot of times there's you when you know the pieces of what's behind these decisions and they all make they all kind of form like a logical construct that works with everything else then it's like it, it makes a lot more sense and and that was a huge part of it, you know, having this sort of like view of humanity, of the evolution of our cultures and formations of states and and hierarchical societies, you know. And it's like thinking about what worked and what didn't work really helped, you know. But but honestly, like the biggest single factor, um, like we were talking about before, was just you know this this deep seated love for the kids, and I couldn't. You know, work wasn't enough. School wasn't enough. The idea of becoming a 
a professor at some Ivy League school, not that I ever would have if I stayed with it, but <laughs> you know, like that wasn't enough to uh, to 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 replace the kind of like sadness I would feel when I would leave the kids in the care of strangers or, you know, watch them go away on the school bus and you know, like that that was the big thing. You know, that the these kids are wonderful and they're loving and they're they're needing, you know, like you know, and especially at those early ages, it, it, it seems like we have we have this thing, and, and it's like a, a sort of like a tempo thing that that I think is really unhealthy. And it's like when kids are first born, you know, they're the most needy, and we have all these institutional and cultural traditions where we're saying you got to stop being so needy. You know, you're going to cry mm-hmm. yourself to sleep in the next room. You're going to go sit in that bouncy chair instead of bouncing on my knee. Um, I got to get work done. You know, you're going to go to daycare and then school. And then at the other end of that, you know, like the juvenile adolescent period, we have the opposite thing where like you're 16 years old, sit down, raise your hand to speak. If you have to go to the bathroom, you'll need a hall pass, you know, and we're, you know, trying to keep them little. You know, we, we make them grow too fast at the early stages, and then we we restrict them too much at the later stages. And, uh, you know, an, an early piece of this for us was, like, we we fell in love with the whole attachment parenting. And the way I think, like, kids are like little containers or vessels, and, and you know, a, or a human being is like a vessel or a container. And, and when they're little, they're so much easier to fill up when they're empty than when they're big and empty. It's so much harder to fill them up. So you you feed into them all the love and support and, and nutrition, you know, when they're so tiny. And then when they grow up, you know, they still need that stuff, but they don't need as much because they're already pretty filled up. It kind of grows with them. And, and, it, and it seems like we, as a society, have institutionalized like the, the opposite of that practice. Yeah. And... You know, like when you see kids that are, you know, raised in more of a free range manner or, or often even like I've, I've met some of the, our neighbors in the, our new country home and, and like their, their kids are just like rolling around in the grass and, you know, taking steps and tumbling and, you know, allowed to fall. And it's like, it's so much easier to learn how to fall when you're only a foot from the ground than when you're three feet, four feet from the ground, you know, it's. But, um, yeah, sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, I think that was (laughs) such a great point, right? Because it's true at, at those two ends, we're kind of doing the opposite of, of what as human beings, they, they seem to need, right? Need and, you know, want all that connection when they're younger and we're trying to separate them as quick as possible. And then when they're older, all of a sudden we want to, you know, keep them close and, and keep, you know, control over them and they're wanting to, you know, spread their wings. So yeah, yeah that's such and when a they're great young, point. yeah, when they're young, they're like, I, I forget the numbers, but like the, the rate of your brain's growth, just like the size of your head, um, it is, it is growing so fast cognitively where, where our wiring is like, shooting out in all kinds of crazy directions and it's like and then and that's the importance of like you know 
push and pull with other living creatures recursively reorganizing with your environment you know it's like mm-hmm. it's stimulating this cognitive development you know and we we need to be fostering that and not restricting it and then you know and when they are i think they you know kids that are allowed to do that they're able to take on more responsibility sooner you know um and and that and responsibility is a kind of a a coded word you know but like they're able to do things sooner than like kids that are deprived of those things and the other thing that um i I wanted to mention earlier when i kind of stumbled over my own thoughts was um i remember i think it was in don taylor gatto's article against school Mm -hmm. where he quotes uh i want to say a princeton professor giving a speech and 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 this guy is bragging about how with their methods, they've extended the juvenile period like two or three years. And uh, when I read that, my jaw just dropped because like um, I'd read a lot in the past about domestication because like um, when humans spread out across the planet, um, they went to different areas and they developed different ways of adapting. And in Europe is really peculiar because like nowhere else, I mean, have humans... Um, domesticated so many species and and domesticated is really the old term but the real term is like co-evolved you know they've like interwoven their lives with these animals so much and so like that's a really interesting topic for archaeologists and um you know for for one it's because like a lot of diseases co-evolved with them and, and that's what was really um incredibly destructive when they started interacting with native americans who like all of north and south america the only domesticated animal was i think the alpaca in south america so um they did what was more like wild managing uh game so they had plentiful deer squirrel and turkey but they were there because they grew so much um food around their camps and villages that there was just plenty left over for all the animals so if you needed a deer hide uh, you could just walk out your door and shoot a deer and there's your meat and hide and um but in europe you know we had them living in our own houses even you know or we lived in the barns with them and um you know so anyway domestication was a real big focus for me in archaeology but when i read that I, my jaw dropped because like when you domesticate a creature the, the number one thing you select for is the retention of neonatal traits because a baby lion is cute and cuddly and playful you know a baby mm-hmm. bear you know a baby anything is, is sweet and easy um you know so when i hear that they're bragging about retaining the juvenile or extending the juvenile stage in human beings i'm like oh my god it it really gives you this sense of a a nefarious you want to domesticate people keep them more docile and obedient you know yeah Uh, that was i don't know to me that that gave me the the chills when i read that yeah well and with the perspective that you had coming to it you know the connections that you made there that's really interesting um I was also curious. So now, now you've decided uh, to stay home with your kids. Um, I was wondering how now, because you said you hadn't heard of unschooling at first. So mm-hmm. I was wondering how you um, went about building or ended up finding trust in the process of unschooling. I was curious about the pieces of that that resonated with you and helped you feel more confident, like that you saw um, with your kids and you. Grew, helped grow your confidence in an, un, living an unschooling lifestyle. Yeah, the 
uh, I think you know, as I said before, a lot of it it, it just sort of was natural. Like, um, you know, we we chose to be completely honest with our kids. Like one of the early rules that we came up with or policies or however you want to describe it, it was like that we're not going to say no to the kids unless we have a very good reason. Um, you know, there's a lot of like things that, you know, you say no out of a habit to kids. Like, yeah. can I climb that tree? No, you'll fall. You know, can I dig a hole? No, you'll get muddy. And it's like, well, you know, we realized, well, that you kids can climb trees, <laughs> you know, like, and, <laughs> you know, Silas broke his arm, quote unquote, climbing a tree. But you know what? He didn't actually climb the tree. He fell off of a slide, a little plastic slide, and he just landed um, in the exact wrong way. And the, the little cap of his elbow um, came off and they had mm-hmm. to put a pin in it. But like he wasn't even in the tree. He fell off of the slide. They could have happened on a chair or anything, you know. Trees are, are I think, even more safe because there's a lot more to grab onto. The branches are all around you. And even if you do slip, you can grab. And, and our kids are, are, are little monkeys, and, and I've never even seen them slip. Um, we have a elm tree I planted in the backyard, and and it has grown like crazy. It's only like seven years old, but it's 30 feet tall. And the, yeah. the kids are all over that. Um, I think a lot of it's because we, whenever we fill up the kiddie pool, I have them put it where the water will go to the tree when it splashes out or is emptied. And, uh, and I suspect living by the expressway, there's a lot of carbon pollution. And uh, that's like food for the tree. But um, everything we planted here has grown like crazy. So, uh, yeah, so a lot of it was just that trust and, and not having... You know, not having that habitual no, 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 you know, like that. So we started moving into it that way. And and uh, I hadn't heard of your podcast. The first one, I forget how I first heard of the term unschooling. Um, but what was really formative was a, a podcast by Amy Childs, The Unschooling Life. And um, what's good with that one is there's just so many things that, you know, it, it makes you question that you wouldn't normally question, you know, like even like, well, you know, you have a kitchen with all this food. Why not be a short order cook? Why should your kid have to eat something they really detest? You know, like we do have them try everything, you know, but it, it's just got to be a spoonful. You know, it's like because sometimes you got to try something up to 20 times before you develop a taste for it. And and I think just having them have a spoonful is a, not too much to ask because like in the end, if they're an adult with a really diverse palate, I think they'll be grateful for that. But uh but now, you know, listening to your podcasts and, you know, articles come up, uh, Peter Gray is, is uh, Psychology Today on Facebook. Um, there's a lot about self-directed learning and and um, uh, letting kids assess risk for themselves, you know, and especially if they get an early start at it, they get better at it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the more you immerse yourself in these, these things, um, and and listening to you know like you interview other people who you know have found their own paths to schooling, the more you just make all these connections, and it's sort of um, like a, a logical cosmological order where all these things are they're not at odds with each other. They all agree with each other and they all support each other. And they're also completely consistent with, um, you know, studies on cognitive development that are published by, you know, in hard science journals that, you know, don't even know what unschooling is. It's like, 
that's a, it's not a conspiracy. It's just like it's just this logical reality. So you know, how can you not do it when you have all that evidence and all that support? Yeah, I know. One thing I find so fascinating is, you know, I'll be reading completely, um, you know, unrelated topics, etc. Um, but their their research, their ideas, when when somebody is truly deeply interested in their topic and they dig deep down, they they find the same kind of roots that we find, like how people learn, you know, how people develop, how how capable um, people are, and then and you realize how universal or foundational to um, the way human beings live. You know what I mean? That that unschooling yeah. hits. You know, everybody. If you dig deep enough in any from any um, perspective when you get to the root of uh, how humans are doing that thing i find so often that they get to the same roots that i i find through i have found from the unschooling perspective right does that make sense <laughs> yeah so the kids they you know a, you know an unfrettered kid you know like not not tied down by a schedule or a curriculum or a, a you know, a class structure, they pick up a task they're interested in, you know, they do a puzzle, they color, they read a little bit, you know, like all kinds of things that you might think are classically educational materials or whatever. But then, uh, but then they get, you know, they finish with, and they go run around or they go take a nap, you know, or they ride, watch TV or something. And, and, you know, so there were these studies that were done that, uh, they had, kids they had like you know test groups and control groups and and like they they would have them study a specific task and you know group a would study it and then they would keep studying it until you know a certain time and then they would have to be tested on it group b um they did one where they they studied the task and then the kids went and played for a half hour you know the same amount of time that the others were still studying and then they were tested on it. And believe it or not, they did a lot better on the test than the ones who mm-hmm. studied the whole way through. And there was another one where they were like, you know, instead of playing, they napped. And again, they did that. It's like, you know, we don't realize it, but, you know, we we process and post-process all kinds of information, you know, when we're sleeping, when we're playing, when we're just, you know, living and being free. And, uh, you know, our schools have like, you know, they found like, oh, our, our standardized test scores are dropping, you know, so let's double down on not working. What's not working? And, um, yeah. and like, let's, let's not, you know, reintroduce recess, which is just completely missing from a lot of them. Or, you know, like our, our Buffalo <clears throat> public schools have been non-compliant for years with uh, requirements for physical activity. And, um, and our, and our scores are really bad too. And, and, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, it's, it's not because of the teachers or the school or the curriculum. It's like, cause we have a, a city that's got, it's, it's incredibly segregated and there's some really concentrated policy pro, or, uh, poverty and, you know, attempts to fix it through busing and things like that in the past really only made it worse and every time the system gets ratcheted down the wrong road further, it can't get back for whatever reason. You know, there's just mm-hmm. too much bureaucratic uh, um, machinery that <laughs> won't bend or flex. So, uh, 
uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I got off oh, the tangent again. A- <laughs> <laughs> oh, your tangents are fun, but I, I really uh, appreciated the the study that you shared there too about how about um, the importance of that free time, right, for things mm-hmm. to just process and connect um, instead of trying to keep pushing things in, keep pushing things in, because that is something through unschooling we talk about so often on the podcast, actually, that value of that free time, you know, and space, if it is to to nap or to hang out, to play, to whatever, that that isn't wasted or lost or lazy time. That time is yeah. is so valuable, valuable. for a person. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, what has been the most challenging aspect of moving to unschooling for you? Well, initially, you know, I felt really insecure about being a a man who takes on traditionally in our society of late, you know, uh, female roles. And, you know, I was I was raised, you know, uh, a redneck kid in Ohio. Um, you know, singing and dancing was not not something boys did and you know i still can't carry a tone like if i try to sing and and i i feel personally robbed from that you know but i still carry a lot of that baggage um that uh and so initially you know like walking into the grocery store with a kid in the grocery cart kid in the snuggly you know um Uh people looking at you because uh i don't know it seemed to me that when i started doing it there weren't a lot of other dads around doing it and um and i would see people look at me and sometimes they'd have concerned looks on it on their face and you feel like they're judging you but you know but I, I quickly realized a lot of those people were just like they were actually trying to be supportive you know like um and and they would say things like uh Oh, you've got your hands full. It's like, oh, boy, great job, you know. And it's like when they start talking to you instead of just looking at you, you start realizing, wow, they actually think it's great. They admire it, you know. And 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 after a while, you know, I, I find the older I get, the less I care about what other people think. And uh, you know, you get more confidence in all your actions and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that was an early challenge, uh, worrying about stuff like that. Um, the, the other challenges are, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit, if anything, it's almost like paranoia. Like I feel like something's going to go wrong and this will all be taken away from me. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, like we had a case in the, the local news where a woman had her kids taken by child protective services for educational neglect. And she was like, I'm a homeschooler. I applied the paperwork and, and, and there, you know, this is wrong. And, and it, the CPS and the schools, they're on bound to not divulge anything about their clients, you know. So all you got was that um, mom's perspective. And, uh, but later, eventually it comes out, you know, like through investigative reporting that, <clears throat> She only submitted um, that there were there were several warnings, and she only submitted the homeschooling paperwork after CPS was involved, and, it, and she wasn't actually homeschooling. There was no history of her complying with any kind of standards, and and she also just was somebody who came from a you know a life with a lot of poverty and trauma and and stress, and you know, and and homeschooling just it ended up just being a tool for her to try to get her kids back, but it kind of it gave homeschooling a bad 
uh, spotlight for a little while in our local news. But but it also just like hearing um, educational neglect and kids taken from you because when when Asa was in school, like I said, I was friends with his teachers and they're really great people. I haven't met many teachers I don't like. You know, I think ironically they're the 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 sort of compassion based grease that keeps the awful machine run. You know, because they're there making lives in this institution more tolerable for the kids most of the time, sometimes worse. Mm-hmm. But um you know, like Asa's we played hooky kind of a lot and Asa's teacher thought it was great you know because she knew we were going to the science museum we were going hiking at Hunter's Creek or you know camping in Allegheny and and you know like um and all these wonderful things and uh or even to the beach gosh there's so much to learn and absorb there um uh whether it's geomorphology or biology or whatever you want to look at whatever your piques your interest but so while she thought that was great, you know, like these administrators, uh, they just see, um, you know, the absences pile up, mm-hmm. you know, unexcused absences. And and we actually got a letter saying, you know, uh, you've missed, I think it was like 16 days this year. If you miss any more, we might start a CPS investigation. Variables there, like, why are they missing school? You know, like ours were missing school for the science museum, you know, and being with mm-hmm. their family in healthy, supportive environment. They were missing it because, you know, not any of the awful reasons you might think. But, but anyway, like, that letter was like, um, I don't know, it was like getting hit on the head with a cartoon hammer, you know, like it was when I really realized that the state has this, like, sort of legal control over my kids and um and i was just like oh my gosh you know like that was scary the idea that they would take him away and and put him in like foster care or something because of you know something like absences and and to me that really that was kind of a pivotal moment for wanting to reduce their control or influence on our family on our autonomy um, cause it, it just was really, really unsettling. Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. <sighs> uh, last question. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Dan. Great. <laughs> well, uh, as an unschooling dad, what piece of advice would you like to share with dads who are considering or are just starting out on this journey? Um, you know, that's, that's kind of hard. Because everybody, okay. you know, like they, you talk with somebody and they kind of uh, they stimulate questions, you know, and everybody's got their own thing. Uh, one one of my neighbors said um, he saw me, you know, crossing that awful expressway with the uh, four kids, and um, and he he's he and his wife want to have kids soon, and they like the idea of homeschooling, but they're scared by it. And he said he saw me like communicating with all the kids, making eye contact with the drivers, hands, gestures, talking, keeping them safe, keeping, keeping them, you know, on the crosswalk and, and waiting, you know, for the signals and stuff. And he said he just couldn't imagine ever doing that, you know? Wow. And, uh, and he said that that was like, just seeing that, what, what he described as like expert parenting in that setting, like that he just felt like he could never do that. And, you know, what I told him was, you know, it's like, yes, you can. I mean, you don't, 
you don't say I'm going to take up painting and then expect to instantly become a master. You start with small moves. There's so many steps in between, you know, that and yeah. where I was, you know, like when you're, you know, first learning how to change diapers and, you know, how to deal with gas <laughs> problems with the kid. It's like there's a, a million things that come before any complicated thing like, you know, camping or or crossing an expressway or outings, you know, it's like, and it all builds on itself. Um, my first. And you have one kid first too, right? You Not four. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just one. And that, and that, those are actually, I think, the hardest times, you know, when the one kid only has you to stimulate yeah. them, you know, and, yeah. you know, when they start having siblings, it, it gets a lot easier. But our, our first outings, um, we have this great, gigantic uh cemetery here in buffalo and i i was really insecure um about going out in public without renee's help you know when i was home with kids and and it, you know it was all just a series of small moves so our first outing was to that cemetery um and a lot of it was because like it's a green natural space it's quiet and there wouldn't be a lot of people there judging me because like you're beginning out you you know, not everybody, but I always felt like people were like judging me, like whether it's because I'm a, a man being a caregiver. It's like, oh, you lose her. You couldn't find a job, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, or some sort of sexist derogatory comments. But uh, which honestly, I've never actually come across that. That was all in my head. Um, but uh, those first outings at Forest Lawn Cemetery were so I don't know. It's, it's kind of like a, a place when I go there now, it makes me feel nostalgic. I still remember you know the parts of the cemetery we hung out in and and the very first time you know like they were out you know they they just like Josie I think was in a snuggly Asa hit the ground running in one direction Silas hit the ground running in the opposite direction and I'm like running around trying to corral them and they're disappearing behind these massive headstones and you know, but gradually we we got our we got our groove on. You know, and and we would talk about lessons we learned and how, you know, like if we're gonna have these adventures, we have to stay at least where we can see each other. You know, and uh, and uh, you know you you build on it. It slowly builds up. You know, and and I guess the the other piece of advice would you really have to just start trusting yourself and your kids. Um, there's this sort of underlying ethos in our culture and like all of Western culture that we have this like sort of Freudian id that's um, this uh, horrible monster just chasing after like the most primal urges and needs. And, and it's like, that's, that's crazy. It's like, um, you know, if you start thinking of like, our primal urges and needs being, you know, that we need to be around other people, that we need compassion, that we need to be able to give and communicate. And you start thinking of those as the things that are the base needs. And you start seeing them more in the kids and yourself and, and you start trusting them and what they want. Um, and, and And you don't feel like you're a prison guard, you know, you feel like you're a learning facilitator and, uh, you know, so it's, it's great. You know, it's like you keep your eyes on that long-term prize. Like I, I imagine, you know, our kids when they're in their twenties or thirties, you know, like, like your kids and, 
you know, maybe coming to a family reunion where they're excited to show up, you know, or mm-hmm. just hanging, yeah. hanging out because they want to be by each other. You know, it's not some begrudging obligation, you know, but uh, it's like that, that sort of long term and those sorts of long term rewards because they don't just end there or and they don't just begin there. You know, those are kind of like the things that keep you, you know, going through the hard times when you're tired and. You know, there's four kids all wanting a different sandwich or something else, and <laughs> you yeah. just want to nap. Yeah, no, but, right. <laughs> so, you, you know, you just got to, I don't know, keep an upbeat perspective, a long-term perspective and a short-term perspective. And trust the, you know, trust that your kids are, they're curious. You know, the world's inherently interesting and they're inherently curious. And, um as long as you keep them in the world and take their questions seriously and and uh, sure that their interactions with each other and other people are you know healthy and supportive and yeah they're going to turn out okay one one of the other tricks i learned a long time ago but i only learned how to employ it more recently was like when i was in elementary school there was this kid and he was I don't know why, but he was just my arch enemy. He would always start fights with me and, you know, like, uh, you know, like physical fights, verbal fights. And, and, you know, the weird thing was, is I usually won. I was a little bit bigger than him and, and, um, and I had no idea why he was doing it, but I hated it. And it, it filled me with the sense of dread, just having an enemy, you know, you want people to like you normally. Mm-hmm. And, um, one day I sat down and uh, thought, it's like, geez, what would it be like to be him, to have his family, to have his friends, to live in his house, to wear his clothes, and have me as an enemy? And I, I realized, oh my gosh, it would be much worse, you know? Like, um, he, he was one of the kids where I was in life doing a lot better, and it's like, I, it just, it, it took away my dread of that kid completely. And and what I found recently is you can apply to all kinds of fears um like with with asa when he was learning to read we started out with a a typical schooling or homeschooling approach where we would you know kind of coerce him to read and um so you know we have this tradition we call it movie nap time it started when josie still needed naps but silas and asa were too rambunctious to let him get them so i would quiet them down with a midday movie which you know, also gets them out of the sun, you know, when it's at the sunburn full peak potential. But, um, you know, so with Asa, we were saying, well, okay, before movie nap time can start, you have to read us one book, you know, to be like Frank was a monster who wanted to dance or cat in the hat type stuff. Not, not real challenging. We just wanted him to work on sight words and things like that. And so it, it went good for a while, but after, after a bit, it started to, um, you know, he began to become resentful, you know, and he felt that he was bored with the books he had read a lot. And we didn't have any others, even though we have a, a thousand kids books. We always go to the library sales. Um, and, it, you know, so he fought it and he became more and more resentful. And he finally was like, well, I don't care if I don't watch TV ever again. I'm not reading a book. And, you know, we're like, OK, you know, like we're building a block here. You know, we're going to make him hate reading, you know, and. And I think that was maybe before we even discovered unschooling, you know, as a thing. But um, mm-hmm. we just said we're gonna we're gonna do it. We're gonna 
back off completely. It's like, okay, so you don't ever have to read another book again if you don't want to. And, um, you know, things went on and, um, you know, a few months had passed and I said, Hey, Asa, would you mind reading me a book? And then I said, no, I guess so. And, uh, I couldn't get over it. His reading improved a whole lot in the, those, you know, two or three months when he hadn't been reading at all with, you know, due to our coercion. Mm-hmm. And, um, the other sort of story was Silas, the next oldest. He, um, you know, we were like, okay, you know, whenever he wanted to read or work on numbers, or we always have like worksheets with tracing numbers available. You know, you can print them from the internet for free, and and I highly recommend a laser printer because you can. It's so much cheaper. Those inkjets won't <laughs> suck you dry. But um, yeah. You know, uh, he would complain that he was never going to learn to read because um, most of our friends are schooled. You know, our friends, sir, you know, we're, we don't not hang out with people because they don't homeschool. And, and you know, like a lot of their friends <laughs> yeah. are just people they've met at soccer or friends of our kids' friends. And, and Silas was, uh, or kids of our friends, um, Silas was really uh, becoming anxious because he wasn't learning to read and kids his age were reading really well and so he would like um he's a passionate person um he's very sensitive so uh, and and what helped me understand that is like when he's screaming it's because he's reflecting what he feels as somebody sensitive he feels it intensely so he responds intensely mm-hmm. so once you figure that you can, you can handle it to uh, more and be more you know, empathetic and understanding, but he was like, you know, yelling at me one day about he'll, how he'll never learn how to read. And, uh, and I said, well, if you want to sit down and learn to read, we can do it. You know, if it's not right time for you, it'll be hard, but you can do it. All these other kids do it. And so we, we sat down with a very simple books and start like pointing to the letters, sounding them out, you know, making the words, you know, and, um, and he's just like, you know, oh, forget this. This is stupid. I don't care if I never learned to read. I don't, I don't want to do this. And he stomped off. And, uh, and, I, and I just, you know, my going back to that first story, like I, I said, like, look around you. You know, like, there's signs everywhere, books everywhere. The written word is everywhere. Now, imagine the opposite of your fear. Like, what if you wanted to keep these kids illiterate? What if you didn't want them to learn? Like, how on earth would that ever happen? You know, like, they, mm. they, they're they natural sponges. There's words everywhere. And uh, so the one day we're, um, we went hiking at Hunter's Creek, which is a really great place nearby. And um, we took a, a, a not usual path home because... I saw on the map there was a different access point to the park, and I wanted to find it so we could explore that the next time. And we're sitting at this um, stop sign to get on 20A, which is a busy road, and and we're kind of stuck there waiting for traffic a little bit. And Silas uh, said, Ed? And I said, what name of the first letter in Beaver Meadows? And I was just thinking, Beaver Meadows, we've only been there once and it was a long time ago like uh why why would he bring that up and i turn over my shoulder and i say silas why would you ask that right now and right outside the window is a sign for beaver meadows with like saying like like x miles down this road it's like he was kind of like in a gestalt way learning to read and now 
with, with no formal instruction at all. He reads. He reads to his little sister and his little brother, and uh, and it's just getting better. And they actually enjoy it. Like there's not those blocks that uh, you know that old uh, "I hate you more than books" you know mentality. Yeah. Like, but. Wow, those are great stories, Dan. Thanks for sharing those. Those are the the pieces. They're they're all the interesting ways that we as as the parents, right? How we learn these things about how our kids um, can be in the world, right? They show us how capable they are and how they can how they pick and pick up and learn just so much just by um, being. I guess being on their own, like being free of coercion, right? That seems yeah, to be a exactly. huge piece, isn't it, right? Mm-hmm. When you got rid of that piece, then all of a sudden they're free to follow their own instincts. Yeah, and, and they do sometimes do things like, you know, that have to be, I, I don't want to, I don't know, restricted or, or reduced, but it's like you don't have to just say, don't do that, you know, like... um you know, we we talk about some of it. Like I, when Silas was really little, there was a guy who, you know, he was he was sick. Basically, he had, he had his body had a lot of extra pounds and there was something going on with his metabolism. And and Silas was like, dude, he didn't know. You know, like he was like, Dad, why is that guy's belly so big? And you know, I was just like, hush, hush, hush. You know, <laughs> and he's and he didn't see anything. It's like, but he kept repeating it, and finally. I just kind of like, I didn't know if the guy had hurt or not, but I didn't want his feelings to be hurt. So, you know, I just kind of picked Silas up and, and we all went out and, and just talked about, you know, how that can hurt somebody's feelings to talk about them, you know, especially right, you know, where they can hear you. And, and that having a, a big belly is, is generally thought of as undesirable in our society. And, uh, you know, and it's like... Once he knew, even at you know, like the age of two, like once he knew that that would hurt that guy's feelings to talk about that or anything, like the kids really quickly, you know, picked up on. Well, if they if they have like honest questions about somebody, why are they doing that? Why are they acting that way? Why do they look that way? That you know, you don't uh, you don't do it in a way that'll hurt their feelings, you know. And then, so you don't have to, you know, punish them, you know, to to get those points across it's like you give you know reasons behind it and and they uh, when they understand the reasons they apply them really judiciously in their real world activities exactly because they want to engage with the real world um and they don't want to be um, mean they don't want to hurt other people's feelings you know that's not something that they want to do they want to in engage um and connect with people nicely right i mean that's mm-hmm. and and yeah. they just want that information right so i yeah i don't think of that as a restriction or anything i like you were talking earlier from an archaeological point of view it's the transmission of culture mm-hmm. right so yeah. you're giving them more information about their society about their culture um and you know they could not take it or whatever but as you've seen and as so many of us have seen um that's what they want they want to um uh connect well with their culture they want to live with people not against you know what i mean does that make sense you know um 
you know, like for like the Taoism gives the analogy of the the way is like a river, and you know, like you can you can swim, you know, perpendicular to the flow. You can swim upstream and get really tired, or you can swim with the water and it's empowering and you go really fast. And culture is just like that, you know. If you you work with the culture. It's it's empowering. It's enabling. You know, even there's aspects of our culture that are really dysfunctional right now. But you know, still, if you learn it and and how to work with it, you can do a lot with it. You know, and even our our public schools are actually starting these community schools, which um, are actually really great. They're they're becoming resources for the whole community, uh, especially evenings and weekends and, and ways for, you know, grandparents to teach knitting classes. And it's just in its infancy, but it's, it's got a lot of potential. But, but yeah, like understanding and, and learning and working <clears throat> within the culture is like, um, it can be very artful and empowering. You know, it's like even, even wind, you know, like the sailing analogy. It's like you can sail into the wind. You just got how to tack and, um, uh, then all of a sudden, you know, the wind that could be just blowing you away from your goals is all all of a sudden pushing you towards your goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Because and then because when we talk about culture too, we're talking about, um, or at least you know the way I see it, it, it's the at at the human level, at the at the connection level, person to person, versus you know the more institutionalized, systematized. Yeah. You know what I mean? The the difference. Like when we're actually out in the world and connecting with people and talking to them and we want to um, you know, engage and get along. I think I was just wanting to make that distinction just in case, but you know, it, yeah. they they really seem to want to um engage with the world as as their parents, as their family, as you know, as as a real person. I always say that, you know, kids are real people. You know what I mean? They, yeah. They're not. Yeah. You know, children are capable. They're real people. They can engage. Um, you, you don't have to put like an artificial um, filter over top of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. What, what I tell the kids or and how I think about it is like, um, you know, in terms of kids being people and deserving respect. Is, um, you know, as you look at that, you know, old person over there there's a little kid inside them and they're like what do you mean and said well well, that person was a little kid right you know like a baby um newborn and then a five-year-old and so on and it's like all those experiences are part of who that person is you know and um and inside you is a little old man or woman and it's like what do you mean they're saying well all these experiences are going to be a part of who you are and you know if kids are taught at an early age that they don't matter you know, they're going to grow up, you know, with the sense that they or other people or kids don't matter. And uh, mm-hmm. they'll never learn how to respect other people if they're not respected themselves. Yeah, yeah that's a really great point, Dan. Well, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it, too. Um, yeah, it was a little nervous, yeah. but I think it went okay. So. Yeah, no, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and before we go, where is the best place for people to connect with you online? Um, well, my email address is teamcadzo, C-A-D-O-W, and probably the best. We uh, named our 
are on the school. We named it the uh, Team Kedzo Research Station, uh, <laughs> kind kind of in in honor of uh, Team Zisu from the Life Aquatic. A uh, big fan of Wes oh. Anderson movies. Oh, cool! That's been on my yeah. list for a long time. I must get to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And our on school bus is named the Belafonte, which is his oh. research vessel's name. Just for fun, we don't take it too seriously. Yeah, but, but fun, we, exactly. Yeah, and we made up T-shirts too. Um, for we did the one the the Team Cadzo Research Station, and then the other one is the Team Cadzo Initiative, which is kind of playing off Lost, the TV show we got into for oh. a little while. <laughs> but I, I think that's fun too. You know, you can make your own school uniforms, build in a yeah. sense of esprit de corps. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Thanks very much, Dan. Have a great day. Thanks. You too, Pam. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes at livingjoyfully.ca forward slash podcast. While you're there, be sure to pick up your free copy of my book, What is Unschooling? In it, we'll explore some of the common questions people have when they first hear about unschooling, like how will my child learn? How do I know they're learning? What is de-schooling? And how do I get started? It's also available at many online ebook retailers. And if you'd like to connect online, you can find me on Facebook at Living Joyfully. Until next time, have fun living and learning with your family.